This is an ABC podcast. Hello. Welcome to Season 9 of The Minefield. That's it. I'm calling them seasons now. It's just, I don't know, something to do with the the binge-watching traditions of our time. Imagine binging The Minefield. God, wouldn't that be a (laughs) terrible thing to do to yourself? Well, Ed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. We're back for another year with original... I know we were here last week, but they were replays. This is original, or new at the very least. Uh, And we have a slogan which I've neglected to read out. We'll get back to that another time. But we have some changes this year, Scott. We do. And um, I I don't want to spend the whole hour doing admin. (laughs) <laughs> but I feel like we should explain at least something. Uh, so people who listen to the minefield primarily on RN, many of them would tune in on Thursday afternoons. And then our yes. first repeat is on Sundays. Now, the first time that you can hear us on RN is Sunday morning at 10 a.m., which I think most of our listeners do anyway. But if Sunday is just too long to wait, we will still have the minefield available for you on the ABC Listen app, wherever you get your podcasts from Thursday afternoon. So, you know, if you listen to us digitally, there's not going to be too much of a change to the schedule. Mm. Anyway, you join us. It's wonderful to have you. Um, The first show of the year is always a a tricky one for us, Scott, because often we're thinking, oh, what what is it that captures the the summer, as it is in Australia. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know, we have international listeners who would have a winter. But um, what is it that captures the summer we've just had? What are the themes that have emerged from it? Or what captures the year that we're looking to, looking forward to? Very rarely do we land on something that both might define the year, but also is yeah, um, hugely definitive of the moment of the week in which we do the show. Mm. And it feels like this year that that has just not by our design at all, I think we should say. It's just happened this way. It's fallen this way. But we've landed in in a place where all of these things seem to have converged on one moment. It's true. Um, Can I just point out before we get to the topic at hand, I I really just have to keep bringing up the fact. Our last two years, we've done that backward glance over summer slash winter. Um, And it's been lovely. It's been really, really nice doing that, kind of taking stock. One of the reasons is because, I'm not sure if you are, I'm still psychologically scarred from our last forward-looking first show of the year, which was at the beginning <laughs> of, of, of 2020, the courageous George Megalogenus. We picked a good year to do that. <laughs> it was. What's in store for us for 2020? Having no idea that a generation-defining pandemic was just around the corner. So uh, are you saying this is a mistake? No. I think we're in, I think we're on pretty safe terrain with this particular topic. Um, okay. It's still going to be a bit of a backward glance, but not necessarily over summer. Do you want to introduce the topic or shall I? No, no, no. Why would we break tradition? All right. I think it has to be you. So we want to talk about Australian referenda. Can I just get a ruling, though, right here from the outset? Are we saying referendums or are we saying referenda? Because my referenda. instinct, it is referenda, because I see yeah. a lot of people writing referendums. Most people that I respect write referendums, and I'm suddenly feeling weird about using Well, yes. Or you could just revise your respect. Oh, Really? I'm just saying they're the options. You can All right. do what you like. So from here on in, I don't know what our guest is going to say, but let's <laughs> let's call them, let's call them let's call them referenda. Um, we are at the beginning, at the outset, on the brink of a referendum year in Australian politics. There have only been 44 of them uh, since the Constitution was ratified in 1900, and since it came into effect in 1901. I've only been 44 of them. So this will be the 45th referendum in Australia's national life. This one is a really important one because it has to do, it's a kind of reckoning with our history. Sorry, before you go into that, yeah, we should add, because I think it's very important, that of the 44, 36 mm. have failed. That's right. There have been eight. Yeah. And so the referenda almost always fail. That's right. Do you, do you know, incidentally, the last time one passed? Uh, was it 77? It was 77. And it wasn't just one that passed. It was three. Yeah. There's and, something about the retirement age of judges. And the three that passed were the incredibly divisive issues of the retirement age of, ages of judges. Uh, what happens when you have a casual sen- Senate vacancy? Yeah. Um, and the ability for territorians to vote in referenda. Those yep. were the three. <laughs> so, no, no, but this, is, this makes a big, that's like right. a really important point. Mm. I, sorry, I don't mean if I'm jumping ahead. I, I 
appreciate I'm now inserting discussion into your introduction. No, I love it. No, no, go. Which is not great craft, but referenda don't pass. Mm. And when they do, they are typically very modest. That's right. Almost bureaucratic or prosaic. Mm-hmm. Can we call it procedural? Procedural, I yeah. think. Is. Yeah, yeah, procedural is a good word. Yep. Yes. You could say there was an argument that 1967 was a bit different to that. Sometimes I think 1967 is described in ways that enlarge it. Mm-hmm. That's right. If you're wondering, we by the way, what was 1967, I mean, we are going to, we, we have to talk about 1967 because I, I think you're right, Willie. There's something about it. There's something about the topic. There's something about the way that the campaign was prosecuted. And there's something about the singularity of that particular referendum that's both instructive, I think, to our moment and also offers a number of warnings. Mm. Okay. Well, what do you want to say about that? Well, no, no, no. We'll, we'll, I'm just saying okay. if, if people are wondering, 1967, yeah. um, we'll, we'll, we'll get to it soon. It's interesting. Sure. All I want to observe from the outset, and this is a, an observation I have made all along mm. from before the Albanese government was elected and said that it was going to commit to the Uluru Statement and the institution of the voice as a constitutional yeah. institution, is that this is a referendum that from the very start seemed to have everything going against it. Yeah, that's right. So it does not have the properties that a successful referendum has. Mm. It has almost none of them. Mm. It's not procedural in nature. It's seeking to do something that I don't think a referendum has ever done before, and that is actually build and instantiate an institution, like a new institution. We can have an argument over how vast or consequential or disruptive that institution would be. That's a separate argument. But it's unarguable that what it wants to do is establish an institution constitutionally. I don't think we've ever tried that before. Mm. Um, It will be proceeding, I think it seems almost entirely clear now, without bipartisan support. That's right. There is an argument that bipartisan support doesn't matter anymore because party loyalty isn't what it was. I'm not persuaded by that entirely, but actually uh, what I would say is even if that were true, it's only that politics is fracturing and fragmenting Hmm. that means that party loyalty isn't what it was, which is moving in exactly the opposite direction you want for passing referenda. So whatever checklist you want to come up with for what makes a referendum likely to succeed, this particular one, the institution of the, the First Nations voice to parliament, and putting it in the constitution, this doesn't have those properties. Yeah. And so I, from day one, I, I support the notion of the voice. I should say that up front. But you've been you've been pessimistic about yes, the and this is why yeah. I I have never thought I, I've never seen a path to victory. Mm-hmm. Now I may be wrong about that. I'm not saying I am necessarily right about that, and I'm not hoping I'm right about that. But. From the first moment that, that and and I feel this moment that we're in this week actually mm-hmm. is illustrating exactly why Interesting. that's the case. Okay, Waleed, before we get into the weeds, not that those weeds are in any way uninteresting or unnourishing, can we just take a quick step back? Because yep. I I have a few hunches, but I'm really also keen to hear your thoughts on firstly why it is that Australian referendums referenda <laughs> <laughs> typically, typically don't get up. So what is it about the fact that only eight out of 44 have managed to pass? The second thing, though, that I'm wondering is what is, let's call it not just the political function, but what is the democratic come ethical function of having a referendum in the first place? What is the importance of having a referendum as a kind of intervention into the fabric of the Constitution? I, I think there are things that are going on with both of those questions that are really important and I think that help us frame this conversation in ways that maybe are unusual to the way the conversation is being held elsewhere. Well, they're kind of related conversations. They are. Related questions. That said, I want you to address the second... Okay, good. ...more than I do because it's not that I have no thoughts, but I think yours will be more developed and I suspect I'll disagree with that. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Well, look, on on the first one, quickly, can we just agree that there is a kind of conservative disposition, small-c conservative disposition that characterizes Australian life? Yes. I mean, we've seen that, I think, illustrated repeatedly over the course of the pandemic. There is something that is deeply non-rebellious, that's deeply conformist, or that's, 
uh, let's just do our best to kind of get along and let's make the best of what it is that we have on the understanding that what we have on most counts is actually pretty good. And so let's yes. just more or less continue with a minimum of the disruption to the status quo ante. But also that Australian life and the Australian temperament captures one other aspect of conservatism that's often overlooked, yeah. and that is that it tends towards the non-ideological. Yes, that's right. Excellent. And referenda that are more than procedural risk tripping an ideological wire mm. of some kind, mm. which I think is another problem that The Voice has, is that even though I don't think it actually is ideological no, I, I in agree. the way that its opponents characterise it, mm. it's very easily understood that way. Mm. And it's very difficult. Or, I well, think, well, I mean, it, it can be construed that way, and I think there's a degree of bad faith in many of those construals, um, that it's ideological. Yeah, I don't, but you know what I want to do here is I want to resist what I'm picking up as, I think, quite a lazy response to the opposition to the voice. Yes, I agree. Of simply dismissing yep. objections as though they are bad faith. Yes, I agree. Be this is, uh, right, sorry, be sorry. Because, You're just, uh, it, it's so wonderful to see that not discussing this, we're actually on the same page on many of these points. Sorry, go yeah, on. Because I think a lot of that is happening. Yeah. Right. It, um, As if opposition can only be bad faith or can only be in some kind of subtle or undisclosed way racist. Yes. Yeah. Unless it veers in the opposite direction and becomes so radically anti-racist that that's where the opposition is yes, coming that's from. Right. And you might say, well, that's a bit different, which by the way, is a big, it's a growing part of yes, the discourse as well, <laughs> which right. is another reason I, I fear for the success of of this referendum. I don't know how it can succeed when it's being attacked from all, like from both flanks. Hmm. Um, for, for example, you mentioned as part of the conservative Australian temperament, specifically, especially on constitutional matters, this idea that, well, the constitution, that Australia has been actually quite a remarkably successful nation and the constitution has been a very successful constitution. Now, I know the minute you say that, People will say only a racist could say that mm -hmm. or that that's a bad faith position to have because successful for whom? Mm -hmm. And then there'll be a discussion about, you know, what has been visited upon Indigenous people yeah. from before, actually, the founding of the nation, etc. And I think the problem is that responding to the argument in that way, firstly, it's completely counterproductive because you deal yourself out of a conversation with what I think would be the vast majority of Australians who actually do feel that way. Mm. And we'll just find any notion that that is just wrong-headed absurd. Yeah. But also, it, I think, makes a mistake, which is easy to make and, and not, it doesn't come from a bad place. I can understand why people make it, but I think it nonetheless is an error of finding a particular objection and using that to counter a general statement or a general assessment of things. It's allowing the particular to prevail over the general in a way that I think just ceases to be persuasive, particularly in the context of a referenda. And this is, I mean, we, here we are doing this, not just this show, not just in the week where our argument about the voice has um, really been amplified, mm -hmm. but also in the week where arguments about Australia Day have also come to the fore as they do every year, yep. like, like a clock uh, uh, this time of year. And I think what lurks beneath these arguments is that there are different camps of people who feel quite differently about the underlying assumptions. So, for example, a lot of people, an increasing number of people, feel uncomfortable about Australia Day being on January 26th. What they don't feel uncomfortable about is the notion that Australia should be celebrated. Hmm. There are also a group of people who feel Australia Day on January 26th is an affront, but who could never really be persuaded to accept a national day because in the end what they really object to is the founding of the nation itself. Yeah. And so what they object to is the legitimacy of the nation. And it is partly on those grounds that some people who hold that view end up opposing the voice because they see it as too complicit. Mm. Right? It's doffing its hat far too much to the settler state and, yeah. and so on. It's a kind of grubby accommodation and a it's a retroactive legitimation of a yeah. founding act of cruelty, barbarism, genocide, yes. and so on. Yeah. Yes. But if we are to say that it is an impermissible conviction to hold. It's merely a myth of some sort that the constitution of Australia has been a successful constitution. Then I think what you are doing at that point is 
you are simply dismissing as myth something that characterises actually a reasonably fair assessment of the Constitution's success on its own terms in its role as a constitution. What you are possibly critiquing is um, the functioning of Australian politics over, well, since Federation and and before. But if you were to ask the question, what is a constitution meant to achieve and has this constitution achieved it, then I think by most measures you would end up having to say, well, it has been successful and therefore we're very reluctant as a nation to want to tinker with it. Mm. It's been successful in precisely the way the American Constitution hasn't, for yeah, example. that's right. Because it doesn't have the aspiration of the American Constitution and therefore it doesn't drag itself into every controversy, right? It's had problems along the way. There have been things that have been tinkered with. The High Court has occasionally got involved. Of course, that's just the nature of constitutional law. But I think if your starting point is to say the whole premise that Australians have something that they want to be proud of already in existence. That whole premise is false and that whole premise is retrograde or racist. Then I don't see how you can have a conversation of any kind that leads to, not even a referendum, that even leads to a legislative outcome. Hmm. Because your starting point is to attack the legitimacy of the very enterprise you're now looking to for action. And it's a contradiction that I I just don't think you can get around. Now, I'm Sure, there were people who have those as intellectual convictions, and I, I don't deny them those convictions. Mm. But once it comes to the bare pit of a referendum and, and the reality of politics, I just think it's doomed to fail. Yeah. And that's where I see the voice debate currently going, because I think what's happening is rather than engaging concerns as though they're in good faith, even though some will undoubtedly not be, some will be, rather than engaging on those terms, we tend to decide we'll we'll engage in commentary on what's wrong with making the objection. Yeah, nice. Well, can we then glean one of the lessons from what you've just described? And I couldn't agree more with what you've said. I think that's precisely right. It means that one of the things that successful referendum must do is they must skew towards or they must at least honor the status quo. Um, there's There's a degree of continuity that must be both honored and also treasured as something that is precious in our national life. And more than that, any argument, any campaign for a particular position in the referendum that uses, say, guilt or national shame as an underlying motivation is almost certainly going to be unsuccessful. It's going to alienate friends, allies at precisely the point where you need to be um, drawing seducing people over to your Mm. side. Unless you're dealing with a constitution with which the population is broadly dissatisfied. That's right. That's right. Now, you've raised other constitutions, and I'm really glad you have, because it does strike me that the whole provision of a constitutional referendum is itself an important one. I mean, one of the things I think that we've witnessed again and again and again In recent debates in American politics, you said before the Constitution tends to be dragged in almost every corner of American political life and almost every debate that's worth having. Uh, There's an inflexibility and a rigidity surrounding the Constitution in the United States because it's been elevated to something like a sacred document. Uh, It's the closest thing to national sacred writ, I think, that you have. But more than that, and Jedediah Purdy's got a wonderful recent book called Two Cheers for Politics. He says, effectively, what constitutionalism in the United States has devolved into is a heady and thoroughly corrupt mix of ancestor worship and juristocracy. In other words, you can never, ever be seen to be or uh, or appear to be on the wrong side of the founding fathers. And the only people that are then given the authority to interpret the intentions, the divine will, if you like, of the founding fathers is the Supreme Court. In both cases, there is a constitutional objection to the fabric of democratic life. Uh, one, of the, one of the impediments, if you like, to the success, to the well-being, to the fluidity, flexibility, to the moral redefinition and self-definition of the American people is, in fact, the Constitution itself. In, in many respects, it's almost like we're going back to a Schmittian concept of the Constitution as instantiating and somehow embodying the eternal life of a people, whatever that people might actually be at any given point in time. What I think is so interesting about the provision of a referendum is that it gives, under very specific circumstances, popular sovereignty the ability to impose itself 
on the conditions of our national life. In other words, it gives the ability for the final imprimatur of what it is that defines us, what characterizes the conditions of our common life. It gives the people the ability to say what it is uh, that makes us who we are. But it raises the ceiling, it raises the bar that has to be cleared for how we make that particular expression of popular sovereignty heard uh, by demanding the so-called double majority. In other words, a majority, a national majority and a majority in the majority of states. Um, what that then is meant to do is to, is to clear out or prevent the intervention of fanaticists and reformers that want to take a particular thing and push it through without thoroughly thinking about the consequences or the divisiveness, the divisive effect it's likely to have on national life. So I think there's something important about the mechanism of the referendum that is democratically potent. It is, in fact, saying that the Constitution can be and, in fact, should be an expression of popular sovereignty rather than an impediment to it, which means that those opportunities for an inclusion of voices into what it is that defines our national life, and therefore a broadening of the way that we conceive of our national life, what defines our history, ought to be moments, yes, of high debate, of intense political and moral seriousness, but the idea that the difficulty of achieving uh, a successful vote in a constitutional referendum ought to be an impediment, I think is precisely the wrong lesson here. Um, there's something about the fact of the referendum, which need, needn't have been there. I mean, it itself was a kind of, uh, was an innovation taken from elsewhere with significant opposition to that innovation. But the fact that it's something that is meant to be an affirmation of popular sovereignty rather than a kind of tamping down of the will of the people, I think there's something there that's really important to keep in mind. Yeah, I, I agree with what you said there. I, I think I would just temper some of the language because the idea of, I'm not sure if this is precisely the word, wording that you used, but, you know, of national aspiration and so on and so forth. I think one of the consequences of having a high bar to clear in amending the Constitution is that the amendments that succeed, as we've seen, tend not to be terribly aspirational. Yes, that's right. And so our moments of aspiration, for what they're worth, probably tend to be more legislative anyway, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. actually. And so they clear a lower bar, um, still a high bar. It's not easy to get legislation through, especially major reform, but it's a lower bar than, than having a, a referendum. So there is something inherently conservative about saying that you're going to make a referendum difficult to do, but it's a conservatism that I think most would agree is fairly wise. Otherwise, you end up with the kind of chaos. I couldn't that, agree more. Um, I mean, imagine if the Constitution could be amended with the political cycle. That's right. A imagine if it was subject to everything that our political cycle is subject to. It would be, which, by the way, is one of the primary arguments for the constitutional implementation of the voice rather than the legislative version, is that once you put it in the Constitution, you take it outside of the vagaries of politics and it doesn't become the plaything, at least in its existence, perhaps in its details, but not in its existence. It, it won't become the plaything of, of just day-to-day -day politics. Yeah, that, that, that's why, incidentally, I mean, I didn't use the word aspiration. Sure. Uh, because there's nothing, there should be nothing, in fact, aspirational about votes that are put to the people through a constitutional referendum. But it is important by means of referenda that the Constitution is the expression of the popular voice, um, which means that those moments in the Constitution that can be seen to be freezing voices out or that are deafeningly silent, um, or that otherwise distort or deform the national face. I think those are the moments that are properly taken to the people. I think you're right. There's nothing, there's nothing reformist then in the tone, the tenor of those referenda. Instead, it's simply saying the Constitution needs to reflect who it is that we are, and it needs to speak with a voice that is intelligible to us. Um, you may like this, Waleed, you may hate it, but in Jedediah Purdy's book, uh, he says that the only way of overcoming the kind of sacred devotion, the wrong-headed sacred devotion that Americans feel to their constitution is by every 27 years, I don't know where it comes up with 27 years, <laughs> uh, having a popular constitutional convention. In other words, every 27 years having a reaffirmation of what it is that's in the Constitution or the ability to change what it is that's in the Constitution so that every person right. within a normal lifespan will have the opportunity to have their say in what it is that defines the common life of that people. Mm. It's an interesting one, but it's, um, I can't see it happening.
Well, yeah, and it, yes. The American Constitution, I mean, we're not going to talk about the American no, Constitution not. forever. Do you know what it is? It's the glamorous movie star <laughs> that everyone knows, that everyone sees photos of walking the red carpet, etc. but that when the camera bulbs stop flashing has all the problems that movie stars often have yeah, of, true. you know, substance abuse and loneliness and <laughs> lives falling apart. Yeah. That outside of the sheen... There are problems. The romanticism is best observed from afar. That's right. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and the Australian Constitution is set up to be very different to that. Mm. You know, and at the risk of repeating myself, can the voice fit with that? Not can the voice succeed as a, um, if it were in the Constitution, would it be successful? I, I'm relatively convinced that that's it could comfortably be so. Yeah. But does it fit temperamentally with the whole thing? And is that the problem that ultimately it's running into? Yeah, but I think this is where the rhetorical appeal on two fronts has to be so delicate and so nuanced. On the one hand, it can't present itself, the constitutional enshrinement of a voice to parliament. It can't be too much. It can't be presented as too much. But it also can't be too little so that it can be dismissed as merely symbolic and therefore constitutional window dressing. Uh, it has to be an appeal that is morally serious and that takes itself seriously. But at the same time, it can't be an appeal that simply dismisses anyone who stands against it as being or as, as finding somehow something, some fault in it or something that would make them otherwise wary. Uh, that would then dismiss them as being part of, say, uh, Australia's more egregious white nationalist inclinations or history. So, I mean, having to make both appeals on both fronts, that it's not too much, that it's also within the spirit of the Constitution, but neither is it simply symbolic. But it is symbolic because symbolic constitutional changes do matter. They do matter because we want the Constitution to express the voice of the Australian people. Mm, but only when they're low risk. But when they're low risk. So I, I think the idea of a constitutional amendment that is open-handed in the sense of inviting people to hear something afresh, introducing something that is very much in the spirit, something that brings people together rather than forcing us into ideological positions or competing tribes. I think there's something about that. I mean, it's morally delicate. It's politically fraught. Um, but I think the, the other thing you've really rightly pointed to is it also can't be all or nothing. It can't be categorical in the way that plebiscites always are. It can't be just yes or no, and if you're no, then you're on the wrong side of history. Mm, but a referendum has to be yes or no in the end. Yeah. Hence, this That's is a problem. very, very, very delicate procedure. Let's bring in a guest. Our guest is Mark McKenna. He's Professor Emeritus of History at the University of Sydney. Quite frankly, there's almost no one we'd prefer to address this particular topic with. Uh, he's the author of a number of stunning books that really have to do with precisely what it is we're talking about, including most recently, The Road to Uluru, also From the Edge, Australia's Lost Histories, and quarterly essay 69, Moment of Truth, History in Australia's Future. He's written a couple wonderful recent pieces on the history of Australia referenda, including the December 2022 issue of Mianjin, and on Little Old ABC Religion Ethics. Mark, thanks so much for joining us on The Minefield. Thank you, Scott, and hi, Waleed. Good to be here. So let's start with 1967. It seems yep. to me that there are all sorts of lessons that 1967 has in store that are both salutary lessons and also potentially dire warnings. Where do you want to take us? Well, I guess, you know, the most inspiring and encouraging thing about 1967 is that the yes vote was over 90%. It was a resounding yes vote. And it's often looked up to as, you know, the high point of Australia's um, embrace of referendum change in, through referendum. But, of course, at the time, in 1967, the referendum was successful partly because it appealed to broad principles, such as equal rights for Aboriginal people, such as a better deal for Aboriginal people. All of the slogans didn't really point to the specifics of the actual constitutional amendment itself, which essentially gave the Commonwealth Government power to legislate on behalf of Aboriginal people. And so it's an example, I guess, of a referendum that succeeded in part because the arguments for the yes vote were very much about broad principles which people thought were long overdue 
Australians were conscious of their international standing in terms of, you know, the criticism that they quite rightly received from many quarters for their treatment of Aboriginal people. Um, and so they wanted to write that. So there was a sense that this was time. And also, of course, there, was no, there wasn't a no case in 1967. We had both major parties agreeing with the yes vote. And I think that's a, you know, that's one of the big differences, obviously, between 2023, the referendum we're heading towards is definitely going to have, there's going to be a no case. And what's more, that no case will be led by Indigenous people as well, such as Warren Mundine, Jacinta Price, and we'll see about the left and Lydia Thorpe, et cetera. So there will be significant opposition. So that's a real difference from 67. But what can we learn from it? I think the first thing we can learn, and I'm sure that people like Megan Davis and Noel Pearson, they've already talked about this, is that we should try and emulate that sense of rightness, the time, that the time is right for doing this, and the broad principle of recognition. So it was interesting, you know, to hear the two of you talking about the Constitution. And I, I rec- you know, I acknowledge, uh, Wallage, your pessimism about this uh, this referendum. You're not alone, of course. I'm actually more optimistic. I can explain why, why I am later in the conversation. But I think, you know, the, the big point about, one of the big points about this referendum we're, we're going to face at the end of the year is in terms of 67, and it's about inclusion. It's about the inclusion of our First Nations people, Indigenous Australians who are simply not there. They're not recognised in the Constitution. So that basic principle of inclusion, of not being satisfied or happy to accept ongoing exclusion from the nation's founding document, yeah, that principle is the fundamental point. And, of course, we know the other points about, you know, finally giving Aboriginal people a say that can't be abolished overnight by the whims of uh, parliamentary legislation. It's there to stay. This institution will stay. It can't be abolished. It can be changed. It can be altered. But it can't be, it can't be thrown out. So what we can learn from 67 is to appeal to that larger, that larger story about the point, the precise point of inclusion versus exclusion. So, yeah, that's what I'd say in relation to 967. Can yeah. I just can I just pick you up on one point, Mark? And I, I think that's really beautifully yeah. said. I couldn't agree more. One of the interesting things, though, about 1967, you're right, there was no no case. Mm. Uh, the terms of the yes campaign, mm. I mean, it was, we talked in, ter- in aspirational terms before, it was incredibly aspirational. I mean, it was inviting yeah. people by voting yes, you are doing something historical. You are making a moral gesture that will have vast consequences for the rectification of hundreds of years of wrongs, the uh, the equal treatment of, of Aboriginal Australians, and so forth and so on. So there was a kind of, uh, we're not asking much of you, and the thing that you are doing will be seismic in its moral Political, historical. Yeah, that's that's right. That's right, Scott. I mean, it, it overpromised. You know, it overpromised on on its on what it would deliver. And you know, you can find many quotes from um, people like Faith Bandler at the yeah. time before the vote took place, promising that it would end discrimination, it would end racism, it would you know, it would basically bring in a utopia. Well, of course, that didn't happen. Um, so it did overpromise. I think. Sorry, I think uh, that, that's, can I just say though, the point is. That yep. may, yes, it was an overpromise. Uh, yes, there was an extent to which the yes case was aspirational and impractical, and that the changes that were made were largely quote unquote symbolic without any kind of real uh, or practical yep. consequence in, in some respects. The interesting counter case, though, is imagine what would have happened had it not gotten up. What is communicated if that referendum ended up? not being successful. And I think there we're beginning to register something of the moral consequences of what might happen in 2023 if this is not successful. So there's an extent to which the argument, yes, it has to be in broad principles. Yes, it has to be open-handed and it has to be inclusive. Yes, there has to be that gesture towards history. This is a matter of making past wrongs right and giving more full expression to what it is that characterizes our national voice. Um, The problem is, If it's not successful, then what it is that is communicated to Australians and to Aboriginal Australians, it seems to me is potent and none of it overly good. 
But the problem with that, Scott, is you can't carry something like the voice through a referendum on the basis that wouldn't it be a terrible symbolic statement if we said no? Mm. I agree. I agree, Waleed. I mean, I think the fear, it's not, it, in other words, you're just letting fear govern what you're doing, you know, or mm. saying, Albanese has already addressed this in a way when he spoke at Gama, you know, he, he actually said, um, he made the point of, well, if not now, when, you know, we can't, we've heard that refrain over and over again that over the last you know decade that it would be terrible if this failed and that's been that's been used that line's been used to delay to delay the referendum to delay the addressing these things so but then so what I, I sorry but what I'm saying it. mark is it can't be used to argue for it either no i agree which is i, agree. Which is, I, no, I suspect I what is happening but, right we, because we, you yeah you will immediately get on. people say no well i don't want to commit a huge constitutional blunder for the sake of making mm-hmm. a statement you can't shame or intimidate people into saying you must vote yes because the alternative no is, is too terrible to contemplate. No, that, you, that's, you that, have that's to right. Argue for the positive. Of you course, have to argue for the positive. Of course that's right. But don't you think reflecting on the consequences of a prevailing no vote, doesn't that cast one's objections into a certain clear light? Doesn't No, no? I don't think it does. Really? No. Why? I know, I know what you're saying and I know why you're saying it. And there might be a, a handful of people for whom that would be persuasive, but I suspect they're going to vote, we're always going to vote yes. So, so, so reflecting, for instance, does my reticence about, well, I'm not sure what it means so better to stick with what we have, mm. does my reticence outweigh what it is that will be communicated by a prevailing no vote? That, that uh, question... It depends what your reticence is based on. Yes. And if it's based on a fear that what you're building is an institution of uncertain ways with uncertain legal consequences and uncertain volumes of high court litigation attending every government action, then I don't think that fear is dispelled by, mm, yeah, but right. wouldn't it be horrible if you said no? Yeah, right? that's right. Now, if you, if you tackle those issues head on and you say, well, no, here's why all of those fears would be unfounded, then that's a different argument. But I detect precious little of that, actually, beyond dismissal, mm-hmm. beyond, well, that's just a ridiculous fear. I, I detect precious little of engagement with that actual argument. Um, and maybe it requires high court, high court judges to do that. And I note that high court judges have weighed in or former high court judges have weighed in on that. But I find it interesting that that's not actually at the forefront of the debate at the moment. No, no, it's not at the forefront. And part of the reason I think, Waleed, is because I heard what you said about the Constitution and how Australians were you know, perhaps proud of this document and it's uh, the way that it's worked over the last 120 years. But I would say, counter to that, I would say that, in fact, Australians don't have an attachment to their Constitution in any significant way. If you ask Australians, are we an independent country? Well, most people would say yes, but I don't know that they'd look to the Constitution to explain that independence. Very few of us could quote one passage. Of course, it's a very unquotable document. Uh, it's, not, <laughs> it's not very inspiring. But, I mean, I think that in a way this referendum is challenging, you know, it's challenging us as Australians to change our relationship with that document, to shift our relationship with the Constitution in the way that, we would, if successful, that the referendum would see, we would see constitutional change as a reflection of a change in our national and social identities, right? Isn't that the problem, though, That's Matt? A, why is it a problem? Because you mean you're right, Australians don't have an attachment to the constitution. Mm, they mm, do, mm. by and large, have an attachment to their country, and they believe that it's a successful country. And yep. the fact that the constitution isn't a major player in that is a big part of that story. So that if it ain't broke, don't fix it thing, is very powerful in Australia because of those. So so I don't think Australians want their relationship with the Constitution to be changed, do they? That's that's the (laughs) danger. Well, in a way, I mean, the success of the Constitution is in part because of its invisibility. Yeah? If you're thinking about the American debate, for example, right, in contrast. So success, one could argue, is, you know, to do with invisibility and needs to do with the fact that most people really don't understand how it works and so on, right? But 
I think that, you know, when we hear those phrases, the Constitution has served Australians well. The Constitution has given us a peaceful and stable democracy. The Constitution is not broke. Well, I'm sorry, it is broke. And when we say that Australia, the Australian Constitution has served us well, who is us? Who is the we we are talking about? If you're talking about really the nation at large. This is what I meant before, though. I think I think the argument you're making there falls into the trap of privileging the particular over the general. I think when people say it has served us well, what they mean is actually the establishment of the nation state of Australia and everything it's done mm. since its establishment is something that most Australians regard as broadly very successful. Notwithstanding dark things in its history that it would like attended to. But what it doesn't want to do, or what I suspect most Australians don't want to do, is tinker with the machinery that has allowed that success. They would rather find some other way. So if you asked people whether or not they were sympathetic to the concerns or the plight of Indigenous Australians, things like Indigenous incarceration, um, deaths in custody, so on, I suspect you're, you'd have something like the 1967 referendum result. The problem mm -hmm. is you're putting something very different to them, which is the establishment of a particular institution that they don't really understand very well and plonking it in the middle of a machinery of a country that I think they broadly think has been successful. And until... I, okay, I'm not saying well, there are no critiques of that argument. I'm just saying until yeah. that's the starting point for the engagement, I fear mm. for the, the force referendum because I think it's taking off on a footing that the, the country the, that you need to vote uh, for it simply won't agree with. Well, let's see, Waleed. I mean, I'm, more I'm a little bit more optimistic. I mean, for a start, just back to that point about the Constitution, I think that part of the struggle here is to see our Constitution as a, as a document that, as Scott alluded to earlier, you know, reflects who we are, really reflects who we are, or at least gets, you know, approximately close to that. And I think that it's not – Aboriginal people, of course, would not say that the Constitution has served them well, which is why they want – they're asking us for the voice. And I think one of the other things that's really important in this whole debate is the slipperiness of language and the terms we use. So, for example, we have the word recognition. We have the word voice. We have the word reconciliation. And I heard, for example, Peter Dutton say somewhere or other the other day that Albanese had conflated the voice with recognition. But hang on a minute. Albanese has done no such thing because the Uluru Statement, which is now in May this year, will be six years old, precisely the point of the Uluru Statement in asking for the voice was to say that recognition equals the voice. The voice is recognition. It is a form of recognition and it's a form of substantive recognition because it's embedded in the constitution. And that's a very fundamental point, you know? So at the same time, I think there's a lot of confusion out there about those terms and what is being asked. I agree with that. And I do think that, um, you know, there's a contradiction. There's, another, there's many contradictions, but here's one. This is an issue that transcends party politics. Yeah, clearly. Mm -hmm. Ideally, ideally. Yeah, but increasingly less. At the less same so. <laughs> time, <laughs> at the same time, it's captive to that to political processes. It's Parliament that has to pass the referendum bill. It's Parliament that mm -hmm. has to work out the detail and so on and so on. And it's the Prime Minister who really has to lead the debate or be out the front, right? So that's a. That's a fundamental contradiction. So when Al Albanese says, I want this to be about the Australian people and this is not a, a political party initiative and so on and so on, he's right. But but the reality of referendum, referenda, is that it has to go through that political process. And I think that at some stage, in answer to Dutton's constant request for detail, I think that that we'll see in the next month or so with three ref three referendum working groups already beaving away, which we'll hear more in February, I think, that, you know, they have to nail their theses to the door. They do, they need to do a Martin Luther. Here's the broad parameters of this. Mm. This is what it's going to look like broadly. And we're not going to get, we are not going to get, and they're right in this, I think, 
you should not, we le- and you learn this from the 99 Republic referendum, you should not tie a referendum vote to the specifics of legislation, i.e. what the voice will look and how it will work, right? You should not tie that referendum vote to the specifics of that legislation because that legislation will change. So hmm. that's the point. That's the prince. That's the point about constitutional enshrinement. It's obviously to enshrine the to ensure and enshrine the existence of that body. So anyway, there's a few points there. No, okay. I'm wondering if the elegance of the quote unquote solution of a First Nations voice isn't apropos here. I mean, Australia already has an unusual, not a singular history, but but there is something about Australian history that is distinctive in a number of different ways. And the idea of having this particular form of accommodation of our history and of the, I, I would say, the moral primacy that is rightly accorded Indigenous Australians within that history uh, and therefore within our national life is is the singularity of a First Nations voice, a non-binding yet constitutionally enshrined mechanism, is there something about that that could be used to appeal to national pride and not be hijacked in some ways to say that it's an admission of sort of widespread or systemic guilt? Is Well, that's what Albanese is trying, isn't he? That's right. That's exactly the way he's pitching it. Mm. And I think it's a very modest, as you know, many people said, it's a very, very modest proposition, really, remembering that Parliament will, at all times, re- retain its supremacy here. It's a very modest proposition. And also, it's not, it's a move away. It's a, it's a turnaround completely from the kind of recognition we were talking about for, you know, since the 99 referendum and the preamble, right, where there was going to be a kind of wonderful coffee table-like paragraph which said beautiful things at the beginning of the Constitution which had no legal effect. And while those might have been beautiful words, they would have had no significant impact. This, this in a way, is recognising the hollowness of those kinds of declarations. They might make people feel good, but this is actually more substantial. It will do something very real and very concrete at the same time, as you say, Scott, that it this notion, this notion of those two words, the voice, it's a very quite beautiful and simple proposition and it's essentially democratic. Now, I know Waleed, you were suggesting earlier that maybe this uh, people can argue and they have done already, you know, that, for example, people will say this is uh, placing a race-based body in the constitution. Of course, well, it's not helpful to say that, of course, because race is a social construct. And... Um, the constitution is already racist um, in the first instance. So, um, but this is about recognising culture, not race. This is about recognising the exclusion of our First Nations people from the way we, from power, from power, essentially. And this is about giving our our Indigenous people a seat at that table. In and you know. I, I only react with dismay when I heard someone asking Albanese the question about, will this body be, will these people be paid? I mean, are we really suggesting that the, the members of The Voice would not be paid? I mean, is that, was, was that the inference there? I mean, that, that kind of thing I find extremely mm. just, what can you say? So um, the obstacles are enormous, but we're still at the stage at the moment as we speak where we have over 50% hovering high 50s to 60% of support across the entire electorate, according to the polls. But wasn't there a poll that came out actually this week showing it had dipped below 50%? It dipped dipped about 4% from from around 60% down to high 50s, right, overall. I thought it was below 50, sorry if I got that wrong. But anyway, Anyway. I think from my reading of it, it was like, you know, every state still had over 50%. And I think that's a good starting point, given that Dutton has stepped into a space over Christmas, New Year, which, as we know, is a pretty sleepy space in terms of politics and national news. So he stepped into that space and he's sowed that doubt about detail. But what will come in four weeks is a more, a much more clearer upfront, I would expect, statement about where we're heading with this. And really, I think, you know, remember that Dutton has never supported constitutional enshrinement so far, okay? 
So mm. somewhere along the way, someone has to ask Peter Dutton, do you support the in-principle enshrinement of the voice in the Constitution? You could dream, you could think up a wonderful press conference where Dutton and Albanese walk out together. I know this will bring a smile to <laughs> you know, where they walk out together and they say, we agree in principle in the establishment of a voice to parliament in the constitution. We will disagree about matters of detail. We will work through that over the coming months. But this referendum is about that principle insertion enshrinement in the constitution. Mm. Would that not be a much more generous demonstration of Dutton's true intent here? And that there are many people in the constitution of goodwill. So it's still all in play, <laughs> the politics of it. But I'm I'm slightly more optimistic, Waleed. Uh, not slightly. I think I think vastly. And I, I frankly hope you're right. I'm not quibbling with that. I just um, can we also just mm. point out that I think the role of the shadow minister Julian Lesser, who has uh, declared his in principle agreement with the enshrinement of a voice and is himself a self-declared constitutional purist. I think his role in this, even though he's been sort of appealing for uh, greater detail and stating that he is withholding uh, his approbation, I think his role in this is actually very, very important. And I think there may well be more bipartisan cooperation uh, outside of of the role of prime minister and opposition leader. Well, he is flat out refusing to say whether he'd vote for it. Yeah, so I mean, but, I know but he's been such him. a vocal proponent of it in the past. It would be yes, it'd be that, unthinkable. That makes, that's what's so devastating, I think, for the S case, is that even mm. he turns around and says, "Sorry, this this feels half baked." Yeah, but I think that's so. That's going to come. It's more a matter right, of timing than of substance. That the next month, and even that might be too late. But I, I hope Mark's right that the next month things change dramatically in the way the S case is put, because I. Yeah, I I agree, Wally, with that. And I think, you know, that um, Dutton is unlikely to to say, uh, do what the Nationals did, for example, and come out with a blanket no. He'll say something like, we're in principle agreement with this, but we don't agree with this detail. So we can't support this or something like that. It's the Republic referendum all over again. That's the... Yeah, yeah. In that case, it sort of does reflect that dividing the vote, you know, dividing that year's vote. And that's the danger. That's what he's trying to do. Well, yeah, and dividing the Indigenous vote. Or are those even sympathetic yes, to the exactly. indigenous, which is happening, I guess, organically as well. Um, we are out of time, I'm afraid, Mark. Thank you for getting our show off to a wonderful start. Um, if it wasn't wonderful, it's our fault, not yours. <laughs> we appreciate your time. Um, and no doubt we'll speak again sometime soon. That's thanks, Mark thanks McKenna. Thanks, Lillian Scott. Oh, no, thank you. Mark McKenna, Professor Emeritus of History at the University of Sydney, our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield, uh, episode one of season nine. I wonder how long I'll keep that up. Uh, we'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.